you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is the fifth week in our series called A Lasting Faith, which is a series, an expositional, to exposit just means to explain the scriptures. We're working through this book called 2 Timothy. And, and how great was it last week, by the way, to have our pastoral intern, uh, Logan Cobb, so skillfully uh, preach his first sermon in big church. We were watching it from a hotel room in uh, Southern California. It was a display not only of Logan's growth and his, his giftedness, but also it was a beautiful example of what we're going to be talking about this morning from the text. Um, less tenured believers being equipped by more tenured believers so that they can in, they can in turn uh, pass on, defend, and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Uh, we're looking at this letter written by the Apostle Paul to his his son in the faith, his protege, uh, so to speak, Timothy, uh, a man who was 30 years his junior, but a man with whom he had this deep uh, friendship. And uh, Paul writes, while he's in prison in Rome, and while Timothy is pastoring the church uh, in Ephesus. So we're going to see three things this morning, the source of strength, the goal of strength, and the example of strength. So the source, the goal and the example of strength. The church at Ephesus had a really cool story and then a a tragic ending. Uh, The city of Ephesus is located in in modern-day Turkey. Uh, In Paul's day, it was this bustling, huge city. It was one of the biggest cities in the ancient world with some 250,000 residents. And because it was by the sea, it was a place of commerce and culture, and it was a place where you would find the latest music and the latest uh, food and art and architecture. And of course, it was a place of much religious discourse. There was a lot of religion there. It was, it was home to, Ephesus was this great, one of, the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis, this goddess of fertility who was known by, by the Romans as Diana. And so people loved to worship Diana, and they did so in a very sexualized way. These, these pagan practices meant that this was a city of great debauchery, a city of, of great uh, evil, a great idolatry. And in that city, the Apostle Paul plants this Jesus-loving church. The church at Ephesus started um, around 52 AD, and there was an arc to this church's existence. You know what a bell curve is, I'm sure. Well, let me show you just a picture of the most simple kind of one. Um, A bell curve begins on one side, of course, peaks in the middle and goes down. And uh, the church at Ephesus had somewhat of a similar trajectory. Started in AD 52, uh, was a church that exploded in growth. It had this incredible uh, preaching team over the years, guys like Timothy and Apollos, uh, this great order, uh, Paul himself. And then later, according to tradition, John, the disciple of Jesus, actually spent time in Ephesus as well. But within a hundred years or so of its start, maybe even less than that, the church started to wilt. And eventually, sometime during the second century, the church at Ephesus would close her doors. In the book of Revelation, God rebukes the church at Ephesus saying, you've lost your first love. So their love for Jesus and their, their trust and belief in the gospel was, was supplanted by other affections and other loves and other beliefs. Well, when Timothy was there, 
when he received this letter that we know as 2 Timothy, the church was probably at the peak, right? Almost at the peak of the bell curve. Um, there were still some good things that were happening. People were still coming to saving faith in Christ and uh, relationships were being reconciled. But false teachers were, were gaining steam and they were attracting more and more people, luring them away from the true gospel. Suffering for Christians was mounting. Uh, there were controversies in the church about the role of women in ministry, about the role and the use of the law for the believer. And on top of that, criticism for Timothy was becoming really, really intense. It reached somewhat of a fever pitch. And then on top of all that, Timothy knew that his mentor in the faith, his beloved father in the faith, Paul, would be executed soon. With all that going on, Paul writes this letter to Timothy. We pick up in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. We'll cover verses 1 through 8 this morning. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 7. He reads the word of the Lord. You then, my child, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. An older pastor once asked a group of younger pastors, who were some of whom were exhausted in ministry and actually many on the verge of quitting, he asked them, which set of words better describes a Christian? Wounded, weak, broken strugglers, or strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers? Which set of words describes what a Christian is and and ought to be? And he cautioned these young pastors not to be too hasty in their response, in their answer. How would you answer? Are Christians weak, wounded, broken strugglers or strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers? Well, the reality, of course, is that both sets of words and actually every word within those sets is used to describe who Christians are and how they ought to be. One set without the other really offers an incomplete picture of, again, what a Christian truly is, a Christian's existence and identity. We certainly are wounded, weak, broken strugglers. We we carry around the body, the baggage of the flesh, and so we are inclined to sin and we give in to temptation and we, we get sick and we see things going on in the world that we cannot control. We are as Paul and Peter would both say, we, we don't belong to this world. World, We are strangers and aliens, as it were. And yet, we're also called and called to be strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers. You say, well, how can that be? Well, the fundamental question really is, from where do we get our strength? And maybe secondly, what do we use it for? From where do we get our strength and what do we use it for? In verse 1 that I just read, Paul tells Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are linguists, and I know we have some in our church who really like language, 
Uh, this command to be strengthened appears in the Greek in the present passive tense. It might better be read, keep on being strengthened. So this is an ongoing exercise, but it's one that involves gaining strength and getting strength from a source beyond ourselves. And notice where that strength is found in verse 1. It is found in Christ. Theologically speaking, the phrase in Christ is a reference to our union with Christ. And our union with Christ is exactly what it sounds like it is. It means we have been united, we have been joined together with Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, when we put our faith in Him, we're made alive spiritually and we are joined with Him. He is in us and we are in Him. It's so much more than a doctrine. I know in my early years of pastoral ministry, I I talked about this and probably even believed that this was just simply a, a truth, a doctrine, which of course it is, but it's way more than that. This phrase is repeated some 200 times in the Bible. We are found in Christ. We walk in Christ. We live in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ over and over again. The point being that every spiritual blessing that we enjoy is anchored in our union with Christ. One theologian, a Canadian scholar, Marcus Peter Johnson, writes, Our union with the living Christ is the essential truth of our new and eternal existence. In a way that gloriously transcends our finite understanding, we are really and truly joined spiritually and bodily to the crucified, resurrected, incarnate person of Christ. There's no better news than that. And Paul tells Timothy, that's where your strength will come from. So here's our first point this morning, if you're taking notes. The source of our strength is our union with Christ, through which God's grace and power are revealed in us. You know, there are some benefits of the Christian life that are, that are one-time, non-repeatable blessings, you might say, or events. The new birth, you know, the, we're born again, we put our faith in Christ, we're, we're made alive, we're, we're given new spiritual life, our, our hearts that, are, that were formerly dead and of the flesh, they're, they're made alive in Christ. Um, justification, this, this beautiful doctrine, this legal act by, by which God declares those who have sinned against him not guilty of their sins because of Jesus. That's a one-time event. Uh, our adoption into the family of God, this is a one-time thing. We're never children of God and then no, not children of God. But there are some blessings of the Christian life that are actually ongoing, so they're not just single one-time events, they're ongoing, and this is one of those. This, this outpouring of God's grace, God continually pours out His grace in us through Jesus. My youngest daughter, who's 15, has become the, uh, the neighborhood pet sitter, and so when anybody goes on vacation, they leave their home, whatever, for an amount of time, she will... She will uh, she will dog sit or cat sit. Now, she's allergic to cats, so I don't understand why she would do this, but she said, Dad, this is what it's like to hustle. This is what hustling's all about, right? And so she dog sits and cat sits. And, you know, with dogs, you may know this, with dogs, you have to put their food out multiple times a day, right? Otherwise, they just consume everything in front of them. But with cats, it's different, she tells me, like Sparkle, this one cat that she cat sits. Um, with Sparkle, you can put her food out, and then you know just one big dish, and she will come back whenever 
she's ready. Now, cats to me are kind of the opposite of grace in that it doesn't matter what you do. They always look at you as though they're disappointed in you. Um, but she can do this with a cat. You can't do that with a dog because a dog is just going to eat everything. Sometimes I think we look at God and his grace as though it's us feeding, you know, cats. In other words, he gives us this one portion of grace and he says, this is what you get. This is what you get. Approach it judiciously. But this is not the case at all. God doesn't say, okay, here's the grace you get and I'll see you when I get, when you get to heaven. He's constantly dishing out his grace. James, the brother of Jesus, would write in his letter, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's an old hymn, and some of you may be a little further on in life remember this. It's called, He Giveth More Grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. And then there's the great refrain, his love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundary known unto men. And I love this phrase, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. This morning, you may feel like you're in a place where you're just, you're at your wit's end and you're in an impossible scenario. And there's no way this could ever turn good for you. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's at home, maybe it's at school. And you feel like you have nothing left to give. You're, you're out of energy, you're out of strength, and you just don't know how things will ever improve. Well, in Christ... God is pouring out His grace in you, on you, and for you. He is your strength. He won't let you be consumed if you depend upon Him. And He especially delights in pouring out His grace when we ask for it. So maybe a prayer that we need to incorporate into our regular rhythms is this, Father, give me more grace he will answer it. Now, one reason that Timothy would need more grace, uh, not just because of the criticism he was receiving from inside the church and outside the church, but, but because the task itself that he had been given was a very daunting one. Look at verse 2 again. It says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul says, I want you to entrust this gospel deposit, the, the beautiful news, the truth about Jesus. And he's not asking Timothy to do anything that he hasn't already done. He said, what you've heard from me, verse 2, entrust to faithful men. Now, sometimes when the, the Greek word tran translated man, this word anthropos, uh, it, sometimes it, 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 appear, or it refers to both men and women, right? Sometimes in the Bible. Um, sort of a generic humanity. But here... Given some of the problems faced by the Ephesian church, this is first meant to be applied to the faithful men in the context of Timothy's uh, church there. Faithful men, elder types who were able then to teach others along with Timothy. So in other words, this, this command has a very real, historic, specific reference to it. 
uh, in a real historical church there was, where there was an obsession with myths and legends and genealogies and magic and ascetic behavior, you know, deny this and, and don't do that. Timothy is commanded by Paul to identify men, you know, elder types, those who already demonstrate the character and the heart of a shepherd, and he is to entrust to them the gospel so that they can in turn pass down the gospel and actually correct and at times rebuke those who are teaching a false gospel. So this is again directed to Timothy first, but there's nothing in this passage breathed out by the very mouth of God that limits the application to first century Ephesians, right? To the contrary, every church should have a commitment and even a plan for the development of elders and elder types who will teach the true gospel and confront and rebuke those who have lost sight of the gospel. And here at Capshaw, we, we have multiple leadership tracks, um, but we also have, we have one of those is an elder training track, and we identify as elders other would-be potential elders who are, who, are, who are men of character, who are serving the church and shepherding the church, godly men. And then I lead them through a nine-month training process. That's the elder training track. We meet in my home, and we go through. It's really a fairly intense uh, process of reading and discussing and listening and engaging and so on. That's essential, and we have that. But even beyond that, the passing on of the gospel deposit to qualified, godly, and trained men, th there's a broader application to this, and it's this. Every faithful member of God's family, that is to say every Christian, should be regularly talking about safeguarding and passing down the deposit of the gospel to other believers. That's actually the goal of our strength. Here's our second point. The goal of our strength is the protection and personal extension of the pure gospel through suffering. Now keep in mind, now Paul talks a lot about evangelism, about, about presenting, proclaiming Christ to those who aren't believers. That's not what this is about. I mean, evangelism, it's critical, it's important, it's an area I want to see us grow in a church. But this is actually about Christians talking to other professing Christians. The older instructing the younger. The younger instructing the even younger. The older in the faith, now listen to this, the older in the faith, despite being younger in age, instructing the younger in the faith, despite being older in age. In other words, so it's not always about sort of, you know, the, our biological age. It's about leaders faithfully shepherding godly followers who will then in turn become leaders themselves. Now you say, if this is about Christians talking to other Christians, then why would there be suffering? Why would Paul talk about, talk about doing this through suffering? Well, the answer is, how did it go for you the last time you lovingly rebuked someone? Did they make you suffer? Did they give you the cold shoulder? Did you all, all of a sudden become a persona non grata to them? How did it go the last time you were gently corrected by someone? Did you make the person who did it suffer? No one likes to be corrected, especially in spiritual matters. And there are so many false gospels of our day that people, they, they, they get a hold of, they cling to, they, they really, they want to defend even 
sometimes even going down uh, with the ship. False Gospels of Timothy's day were actually very similar to the false Gospels of our day. Let me give you a very quick uh, 60-second survey here. The Gospel of Moralism, this idea that really the Christian life is all about behaving better. And what God wants for us to be is just well-mannered, good, polite, obedient people where the heart is never really addressed, repentance, uh, the gospel of pluralism, which just says, look, all the roads in, go to the same God as long as you're sincere. And so that's what really matters is your sincerity. The, God, the prosperity gospel, which I can tell you from having preached and done ministry in 19 countries, that th- this is a very, very big deal in the global south in particular. Uh, in, in places on the continent of Africa where people are being told, people who, are, who have nothing are being told. If you just trust in Jesus, you'll have money and you'll have a job and your kids will be healthy. This is a false gospel. The therapeutic gospel, which just says what God really wants for you is to be happy, to feel good about yourself. That's why God exists. The judgmentless gospel, which says that you know, there's, no, there's, no, there's no judgment at the end for those who reject Christ. And then one that Timothy never dealt with, I assure you, uh, but maybe one that, that what we're facing the most right now is what theologian Trevin Wax calls the churchless gospel. With this false gospel, salvation is all about the individual's spiritual progress. And that spiritual progress is said to take place with a church or without a church. doesn't really matter. I worship God on my own, those who buy into this gospel say. I find God everywhere. I don't need a community of faith. I say Timothy didn't deal with that one because there was no such thing in the first century world uh, uh, as a Christian who was not part of a church. Because being identifying with Christ meant suffering, real suffering. And it was the sort of thing that you couldn't, uh, couldn't endure without the love, the support, the prayer, the encouragement, and the bond of other believers. But we have all these other gospels, false gospels, and of course, when we confront someone about one of those, yeah, they're going to react negatively at times. When we're confronted, we react negatively. A woman in a church that I served once in Southern California asked me if I would do the memorial service for her atheist brother. And I said, look, I'm happy to do this, but I want you to know I won't do a funeral service without proclaiming the gospel. She said, no, I want, I want you to do that. Well, I did the memorial service at the University of California at Riverside. This guy was a philosophy professor. And uh, I've never been looked at with so much disgust in my life. I've never felt so hated in my life. A full room of atheists looking at me like as if I was the biggest fool on the earth. How could anybody believe any of the things that I was saying? A couple of them confronted me afterward. Uh, over hors d'oeuvres, and uh, they were not pleased with what I had to say. But I have to say, as hard as that was, I've had worse responses to, to offering gentle correction in the church among believers. Uh, my oldest son, who's a seminary student in Southern California where he's preparing for a pastoral ministry, we just spent a week with him, although I barely saw him, I just saw that little baby the whole time. Um, but he told me a couple of days ago, or a few days ago, that in his discipleship class, one of the assignments is that each student is to, to read a different popular book that, you know, that, that a lot of Christians are buying up and snatching off the shelf, 
And then they have to figure out how they're going to loving the student, the students in the seminary class, how they're going to lovingly and gently, how they would lovingly and gently confront someone in their church who has really bought into this. Now, of course, every student was thrilled. The student who got the shack, you know, was thrilled over the moon about it, right? That one's not that hard. Or the one who got, uh, one student got Rob Bell's Love Wins. That's pretty easy. But some of the other books are much more subtle. The one that my son got, a much more subtle book that he has to figure out, how do I help people in the church see this is not the gospel? But this is not, of course, again, just the responsibility of pastors and seminary students. The Holy Spirit has entrusted every believer with the stewardship of the gospel. Every believer then is commanded to entrust that same gospel to others who can faithfully pass it on as well. There's a sharpening that takes place. The Bible describes it as iron sharpening iron. Have you ever thought about that that analogy, that picture? What happens when iron sharpens iron? Well, It's steel crashing on steel. Sparks fly. Heat is generated. One sword is left with a dent. This is not an easy thing. But beautiful things happen when we follow God's design here. When the gospel is entrusted to someone else and then passes it on, sometimes we see the light bulb go on. And someone understands for the first time the beauty of the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ's work and the power of grace. I remember I mentioned to you a few weeks ago Paul Zoll's book, uh, Grace and Practice, this Harvard scholar who said, when I finally got grace, it just changed everything for me. It turned me into a father whose kids loved him, a husband whose wife delighted in him, a pastor who could identify with those who are suffering, When we pass on this gospel deposit, we see beautiful, incredible things happen in the life of the church. But even more importantly, we see Jesus magnified. Christ is known for who he truly is. A merciful, powerful, gentle, and strong Savior in whose presence there is forgiveness and strength. So there will be suffering. And Paul, he he instructs Timothy to endure, but he gives them four or three illustrations, three metaphors. The first one is the soldier. The soldier enlists, and he he goes off, and he gets his head shaved, and he enters into battle. He doesn't have time to engage in civilian affairs. The next metaphor is the athlete, verse 5. The athlete eats a strict diet and gets up at 4 a.m., six days a week, and pushes his body to the brink of exhaustion, even to the point of vomiting, all for the end goal, the prize the medal, and this athlete uh, metaphor takes even greater uh, significance now as we watch the Olympics. Paul says that everyone who does so competes according to the rules. And how many people have we seen in, in skiing or, or snowboarding or figure skating or whatever it is be disqualified because of a technicality? Paul says, no, as an athlete, you pay attention. You're painfully aware of every rule. The next metaphor is the farmer, verse 6. And I don't know of, a, I don't know of any vocation. And I know, because I, I, I know this church, I know some of you work very, very hard and very long hours. But I don't know of a vocation that requires more of a person than a farmer. Uh, we, li- we lived in Valparaiso for eight years. We had at the church uh, that I served a, a, one, of the, one of the nation's biggest uh, tomato farmers who 
supplied all the tomatoes for Red Gold, this brand Red Gold. And this guy and his whole family, they, they worked tirelessly. I mean, they were up when it was dark, and they kept working until dark. Now, they still had time, by God's grace, to engage in the believing community. And some served on the work, worship team, others were deacons, um, this, this extended family. But um, they, they did all that with one thing in mind, the crop. So what's the distinguishing characteristic of all three of these examples? It is their single-mindedness. That's what it is. For the soldier, his focus is on victory. For the athlete, the prize or the medal. For the farmer, the crop. Paul is calling us to a single-mindedness as believers. Believing the gospel, resting in the gospel, talking about the gospel, protecting and safeguarding the gospel, and passing on the gospel to those in our circle. Now, it doesn't mean we can't talk about anything else. It doesn't mean we can't talk about food or sports or politics or uh, the weather or culture or missiles, if that's your sort of thing. We can talk about other things, right? I was on the flight to San Diego last week. I, I watched this documentary on uh, Julia Childs. I think it's just called Julia, as I recall. Um, but in it, uh, Julia Childs said that Anyone who doesn't enjoy talking about food was born without a personality. Uh, now, that may be a little extreme, but the thing is, we can, yeah, we can talk about food. We can talk about other things. But what our hearts burn for is the gospel, God's love for undeserving sinners like us, God's plan to save the world through the person and work of His Son. We are called to a single-mindedness in this. Brian Chapel writes this, a New Testament scholar, pastor, author, single-minded devotion to a thing, a sport, a philosophy, or a cause, can turn you into a machine. But when that devotion is given to Christ, who is perfect God and perfect man, whose commands are consonant with perfect love and our highest good, then we become what we ought to be and can stand tall even in suffering. But think about this. I mean, there are so many other things. And, and this is the most distracted era in, in world history, you know, with devices and phones and, and watches and so on. Um, think about all the other things that really compete for our attention. This is a daunting task, isn't it? This is a, a, a harrowing command, we might say, to remain single-minded about the gospel. Because I'll be honest with you, a lot of times my mind is on a lot of other things. Now, again, it doesn't mean we can't think about other things, but sometimes my heart really burns for things, other things. This is why I love what Paul does next. Look at verse 8. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So all of these other examples, the soldier and the athlete and the farmer, they give us a glimpse into what God requires of us, but they don't give us the motivation or the power to actually embrace that sort of single-mindedness. But all of these examples actually point to someone even greater. Notice Paul doesn't tell Timothy to remember Jesus' work ethic, although certainly that, I'm sure, was legendary. A carpenter who I know, I'm sure, worked hard. Notice Paul doesn't tell Timothy to remember Jesus' evangelistic efforts, although we know that Jesus was very much about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Notice that Paul doesn't tell Jesus, 
or doesn't tell us or Timothy to remember Jesus uh, the way that Jesus entrusted the gospel to others. He doesn't mention any of those things as important as they may be. No, Paul tells Timothy to remember Jesus' resurrection. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Jesus' resurrection will not only be Timothy's source of strength, but also his comfort. Jesus' resurrection meant that Timothy's sins were forgiven. Jesus' resurrection meant that Jesus' payment for sins on the cross was sufficient and fully received by the Father. And knowing that he was completely and totally forgiven, received and approved by the Father because of Christ, would give Timothy the confidence to endure suffering and to entrust to others that same gospel which Paul says in verse 8 proclaims the risen Jesus. Have you ever noticed that it's ever struck you as odd that when Jesus would heal somebody, sometimes he would say, now don't tell anybody. Have you ever read that in the New Testament? I thought, that's very strange. Heals a person of disease, casts out a demon. He said, don't tell anybody what's happened to you. Now, why was that? Well, it's because Jesus, you know, he, he, yeah, he healed people. He was happy to do that, but that's not why he came to the earth. Sometimes he would cast out demons, which he was glad to do, but that's not why he came to the earth. Jesus came to the earth for a single-minded mission, to seek and save the lost by living for them, dying for them, and being raised to new life for them. Jesus was single-minded in that mission. It was so much so that he didn't want to be distracted, didn't want other people talking about him as a miracle worker or healer or whatever it is. He did not want anyone to lose sight of his mission. He was single-minded in a way that the best soldiers and farmers and athletes can only poorly imitate, but they can give a picture of. Here's our final point this morning. The example of strength is the Lord Jesus, whose single-mindedness is pictured by faithful and undistracted workers of every vocation. The soldier, the farmer, the athlete, they just point to the single-mindedness of Jesus. Now, are we to be single-minded? Like the examples Paul gives? Yes. This is for Timothy. This is for us. And I hope in your life you have someone who's younger in the faith, maybe even older in terms of their existence, but they're younger, they're, they're less mature that you're actually talking about spiritual things with. Yes, this is for Timothy and for us. And with the power of Christ in us, we can obey that command as we rely on the Spirit and trusting the gospel, passing it on. But for all the times that we've been single-minded for something else, for all the ways that we communicate to our kids or to others around us, that what we really get fired up about, politics, sports, food, our kids' sports, something I had to go and seek my own children's forgiveness for. I was showing them by my actions that what I really cared most about was their performance in sports. I couldn't care less if they were late for school. But if they miss a practice, that really bothered me. So I had to go and seek their forgiveness. For all those times that we communicate to the people around us that what we really, really get excited about are other things. For all the ways that we have failed to entrust the gospel to others, 
There's Jesus, who himself was single-minded, even to the point of death. A death for us, a resurrection for us to show that our sins have been forgiven. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you are the one, you're one of the ones that he came to seek and save. And his salvation is complete. Your forgiveness is final. Even in those times when you don't feel like you belong to him, you are still his and he is still yours. You are united with Christ. And even those times when you let your mind and your heart, like I do, be drawn away by other loves, Jesus was fully and perfectly devoted to the Father so that his devotion could be counted as our devotion by faith. When you show your friends that what you really value is not really the kingdom of God, but some of these other things we talked about, Jesus died for that idolatry and fully and perfectly value God and his kingdom so that by faith, Jesus' values will be credited to you as your values. When you yell at your kids because they've distracted you from doing what you really love to do, if my kids walk in front of the TV during the Super Bowl, they're going to get yelled at. When, not really. Well, maybe. Um, but when, when your kids get yelled at for, for, because they've distracted you, Jesus died for that sinful anger. And he himself never responded in sinful anger so that his perfect, patient record could be imputed to you by faith. Jesus' mission was single-minded to seek and save the lost. And he fulfilled that mission by living a perfect, obedient life, dying on a cross for us and being raised to new life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that even though you have called us to do the very difficult thing of entrusting the gospel to others, passing it down generation to generation, the more tenured believer to the less tenured believer. You've also told us about something that's been done. And you've called us to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. A reminder that assures us when we fail to speak about the gospel in the way we should and at the times we should. And when we allow our hearts to be drawn away by other loves, our forgiveness is complete in Christ, and you will never hold against us our double-mindedness. You will never condemn us because of our wandering hearts, our hearts that are prone to wander, because Jesus' heart was solely committed to you, his obedience perfect in every way, and he valued and demonstrated the kingdom in such a way that when we trust in him, you credit to us his obedience and his perfect record. Father, comfort us this morning with this reality, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.